time now for the nationally syndicated radio show, The World of Lori Zook. And now, here she is, the smart, the sexy, the savvy, divine Miss C. And welcome to the show. Now today, I have a Masters and Legends special for you. I have musician Russ Kassoff joining me from New York today, and this is part two of my interview with Russ. He's also a conductor, a producer, and an arranger, and he's performed with Frank Sinatra, Rita Moreno, and Liza Minnelli, as well as many other celebrities, and he also hosts his own radio show. So, Russ, I want to welcome you back. It's so great to be back. We were so rudely interrupted last time. That's right, and now we're going to continue on. Um, we have a mutual friend, Glenn Zatola. I want to give him a quick shout-out for introducing us. Uh, you and I have been keeping in touch on email and on Facebook, and I, I do love your Facebook po- uh, postings because you definitely have a sense of humor. Um, can you give me a short recap of who you are, You know how you started out in music up to where you are today? Well, when my parents uh, had me in 1953, please uh, raise your hands if you remember that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> At about the age of three, they bought me a toy piano, and I became enamored with music by listening to Bugs Bunny cartoons, and I was able to copy what the music was playing, what music was playing in these cartoons, and there was one particular cartoon uh, where Bugs Bunny just comes out and plays uh, Hungarian Rhapsody Number 2, and I was able to copy that, so my parents thought that I had some talent. They got me lessons, they bought me a piano, and uh, I went into my own world and learned how to improvise, eventually uh, learning jazz. Uh, I, at the age of 13, I was called by some 18-year-olds who heard that I knew every song ever written, which wasn't true. It was every song that they knew were ever written. <laughs> and uh, they asked me to come up to a, uh, a, a hotel in the Catskills to play for the summer, and that's where I honed my skills. I learned how to uh, read the smallest minuscule dots on the page and play for different acts and singers and comics and dance teams and strippers, pardon the expression. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that's how I learned how to be a musician. And I knew that I was going to be a musician all the way from the age of about four or five when my father took me to the Steve Allen show and I was so mesmerized by the band. Steve Lawrence came out, he sang Portrait of My Love and the band was playing cards. And I said, what? This is what I want to do. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't realize that they had pre-recorded the accompanying track. But that's what they did. And uh, that was way back in the late 50s. So uh, I've been pursuing finding ways to be a musician and play and practice and learn and be a student ever since. That would be a short synopsis, wouldn't it? Yeah, and that was an excellent short synopsis, and and now and actually you're you're I think you're well known, but I think you should be more famous than you are. Well, every one of us is famous to the people who know us. This is true. Well, I want to talk a little bit. I want to go back to our first show because we were talking a little bit about classical music. Now I was trained as a classical pianist, and one of the things I talked about with um, scales and arpeggios. Now, here's how I teach piano, and then you can kind of elaborate, but maybe this will clarify a little bit. Most people think, or most non-musicians think, that classical, classical music is more uh, structured and rigid. Not that there can't be melody lines, but it's more structured in the way you learn it as opposed to jazz, which tends to be more free flow and improv. Now, if you're a musician, I think you know that the two kind of fit together because all music really is based upon classical music, correct? Well, that's one way of looking at it. Classical music, well, you you can define anything that is composed to ultimately the finished product being a piece of classical music. If it's written down and every note is there and all the intentions of the composer are portrayed to you, with directions and dynamics and phrasing and uh, articulations and all this and that. But uh, in jazz, you're not given that. You're given a guide. In classical music, it is more rigid in that what is put down on the printed page is the final improvisation of the composer. 
So the composer has written a piece, usually in the style of the time, which only permitted certain kinds of harmonies, and harmonies developed over the years, as we know in the history of music, to the point where it became 12-tone and then almost avant-garde. Um, but if you're playing a Schubert uh, impromptu or a Mozart sonata or a Ravel piece, uh, all the notes and all the composer's directions are generally there for you, and you may take liberties with how to play it, but not with the notes. And so it is very rigid, and um, in terms of the discussion that we had about scales and arpeggios, the, the point I wanted to clarify was that I, as a classical performance major when I went to school, was at a level that I had done all that as a child, and it didn't seem that it was productive to continue to just play scales and arpeggios uh, to learn how to play a new classical piece that would have been put in front of me. It was more important to me to learn the hard passages, play those passages instead of the scales and arpeggios, take right. the time to do that. And that was an argument I'd, I always had with my major teachers when I was in college. And they ultimately agreed with me because I would say to them, well, if you want me to play, say, a C major arpeggio in the right hand and an F sharp major arpeggio in the left hand at the same time, what would be the point of doing that unless it was in a piece that I was learning? So uh, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Um, I think people weigh down, a lot of teachers weigh down too much on teaching the scales. But when I've taught piano, what I find is if students learn how to play chords, the notes that make up the chords, and, there are, and actually I teach it a little bit differently. I teach it in a non-conventional way that people tend to pick up quickly. Um, but if they know what the chords are, and you learn C chord, F chord, G7 chord, and now you're coming to play standard classical music, and I'll say, okay, what chords are in that first measure or that second? Once you can learn it through the chord method, you can kind of apply it into the, the classical. I can go, okay, that's a broken C major chord or a broken C7 chord or a backward C7 chord. And what I find is people who learn through chords, because a lot of people, you know, adults, they might not be so interested. They go, hey, I just want to learn to play some fun pop music or some ballads or whatever style it is that they want to learn. Mm -hmm. But then as they go on, they go, you know, I want to learn how to play for Elise or I want to learn how to play a Mozart sonata. And Mozart's real easy to show the chord structure because a lot of those, those sonatas, that, that is what it is. But, yes, it is lyrical, and you can't have it in a melody. So that's what I was going to try and clarify. Sure. I agree completely. Now, one of the other things I want to address is in, in the classical, you were just talking about how when you play, for example, I'll use a, a Mozart sonata. Years, probably 20 years ago, I went to a seminar given by, uh, by a teacher who kind of changed my perception on the repeats, for example, in sonatinas where they were embellished. And the teacher said, you know, none of us were around 300 years ago, however many years ago, 200 years ago, when, when these composers wrote this music. But a lot of them were very show-off style. And what, what, is, what could have happened is on the repeats, they played the music differently the second time around in regards to the embellishments on that piece. And I thought that was kind of interesting because if you play the exact same repeat twice, you're really just elongating the song. But if you slightly change it on the embellishments, then you've got a variation of that. And I thought that was an interesting concept. What do you think? I think that's a great concept. Also, say you are playing a concert and you've decided to play a Mozart or a Beethoven or a Haydn sonata, and they all have the repeat in the structure of the first movement, uh, and you're playing from memory. When you come out and you're playing that piece, no matter how much you've learned it and how confident you are to play it, when you play it the first time through, you're thinking of other things, like, oh, this passage is coming up or right. the chord is coming up, and I hope that I make it. And once you get through it the first time, you're more relaxed. So you're naturally going to play it differently and, and be much more relaxed and lyrical the second time. And I, I thought that was a natural occurrence that happened, at least for me, whenever I played pieces like that. Uh, I intended to bring out the melody and the moving harmonies more the second time through. So... Again, I'm agreeing with you. I think it's a great thing to think about. Uh, we don't have anybody, uh, at least I don't know of anyone who's written a book about what it was like to listen to concerts like that in the classical music period. 
Now, do you still play classical music? I mean, for yourself even? Yes, I do. I always have the Alban Berg Sonata, Opus 1, mm-hmm. next to me at the piano. That's one of my favorite pieces because it's romantic. It's just at the cusp. Berg went very atonal. He didn't quite go uh, 12-tone, but he went almost avant-garde later in his life with his operas. But early on, the Opus 1 Sonata is like playing Chopin with hipper harmony. Right. Well, I think I think it's pretty interesting. Now, I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you about some of the people that you've performed with. Have you performed? Let, let's before we go to the famous celebrities that you've performed with. As far as classical, do you give performances to this day, or it's mostly for yourself? Well, there are occasional gigs where people request classical music, so I always have at the ready uh, a pile of books. I've got a huge library of things that I could work up really quickly, like uh, a Scarlatti Sonata or a Chopin Etude or a Bach Prelude and Fugue. So sometimes when I'm playing like a private party, they want to have that kind of an atmosphere for the background, I will do that, and I will do the authentic music. Um, It's been a while since I've uh, learned an entire classical piece for myself. Uh, some of the most recent are Norman Della Gioio's Third Piano Sonata, which is a beautiful piece. Look it up, everybody. And um, it's not often played. Uh, and uh, some Scriabin that's very difficult, and I love Scriabin. It's very rich in harmony and soul and spirit. Now, how do you find, how would you give advice to someone listening that's an inspiring musician that is, you know, that, that's playing an instrument? Let's, we'll use piano as an example, of course. Um, and, you know, it, for me, when I play classical, I almost say, okay, I'm Mozart and I'm playing this piece. Or I'm Beethoven. What would Beethoven be thinking when playing this piece? And I know maybe that sounds silly. Or if I'm playing Bach, I go, Bach, you know, he kind of kind of has his style. That You think of him in your head if you study these composers. Do you ever find yourself doing anything like that? Uh, or is it just crazy me? You mean thinking like a composer well, or thinking like thinking like the composer that actually wrote the piece because obviously no one was alive so we don't really know you know how how they performed that particular piece but when you're playing that piece do you ever say okay i have to pretend that i'm mozart and this is how i think mozart would play it well i think about what the atmosphere in the room would have been like a salon and how many women would be there (laughs) things things like that and who would be in the room that actually would know anything about the music Uh, A good example is when you're given recitals in music school, whether it be a private music school or a college, uh, there are actually always people in the audience who are very familiar with what you're playing, if it is classical music. Either they have learned it or played it themselves, or they're just students of the music. So you're always... That's the one thing that really makes you nervous. There's nothing else that makes you nervous uh, more than having somebody who's an expert at what you're doing be in the audience. So I almost never get nervous because I've almost never come into contact with experts or heroes, for example, in the jazz world. Okay. Um, and uh, I have never thought what it would be like to be Beethoven while I was playing a Beethoven sonata, other than knowing a little bit about his biography and his illness later in life and the way he composed at the piano, and it was very difficult. Uh, he, he became deaf later on. Right. Mozart was kind of gallivanting about town, and, and he was kind of like a, a lifelong prodigy. And, uh, you know, every composer has a different thing, but the, the thing they all have in common is they were all geniuses. They were all able to hear this incredible music that has stood the test of time. When you play, how do you bring out the melody? How do you explain to somebody, uh, for example, in piano, the melody is typically louder than the harmony, but it's the, it, the feeling that you're putting into that. That's kind of what I'm driving towards. Do you must feel something as a musician when you're playing that song. It's not just rote. No, it's not rote at all. You, you, you have to find your way. This is like you can... Uh, transpose this to today, everybody has a computer and everybody has a different way of working on their desktop. Um, There are so many different ways that you can learn music. You can just sit there if you're a good sight reader and you could sight read it, but that's not going to give you enough information. You're going to have everything in front of you, you're going to play it, it might sound nice to you. Then you're going to 
want to analyze the piece that you're playing. This is classical music, not necessarily jazz or tunes of jazz or American popular music. In classical music, say you have a Bach two-part invention. There are two equally distinctive voices. Right. And you have a calculated tension in your hands. Uh, you have to learn how to use the muscles in your fingers to, uh, it's like an electric current. Your eyes see it, it goes through your body, and it comes out the finger that's playing the, the note that is part of the line that you are expressing. So um, if you're trying to play a two-part invention, you're trying to make both lines equally lyrical. If you're trying to play, say, a fugue that has three parts or four parts in Bach, who was like the, the most amazing genius of this kind of writing, contrapuntal writing, right. where different... Uh, voices have different equalities and different strengths, you have to seriously look at each voice one at a time. Uh, you may not be able to analyze it right away in terms of harmony, like going from a one chord to a five chord or an occasional seventh uh, within the chord, you know, whatever was permitted in the day. Bach didn't have a lot to work with. He wasn't allowed to use like hip jazz chords like we have today. <laughs> it just wasn't, it made people go crazy. Uh, you get fired for that. Yeah. But, but, but anyway, um, you, you should learn in a, in a Bach piece each uh, voice by itself and see how that voice makes sense to the other voices. And you should realize by doing that the, the order of, for lack of a better word, volume. But it's the soul, it's the spirit of the whole thing. Uh, there are motifs in Bach, a lot of motifs like a very simple, small group of notes that get repeated in two, three, even four voices from time to time. And you want to bring those out. So you have to figure out a way to make the fingers in your hands be able to have the strength to, to point that out to people. Like, here's the little motif, here's the little melody, and the audience is listening. And then, oh, by the way, that melody is all of, the, all of a sudden going to going to become an inferior or interior voice and the second line which may be played in the first and second finger becomes the melody then and that's important for you to be able to realize that hey that's all over the place this is moving all around and it's a really great complete piece of music yeah anyway, the, the cool. yeah the Bach conventions I mean they're they're difficult keep in mind most people are right-handed the left hand is usually the weaker hand and in the Bach, if you don't balance out the hands as they kind of alternate the melody, you want to make it appear seamless so that the listeners aren't hearing the transitions. And I think especially for younger people, that's hard to learn. Well, it would be um, necessary for the people who are just learning to acknowledge that the voices, the lower voices that may fall into the weaker hand, uh, are important. And to play them by themselves. Don't even play the other voices. Listen to how that one voice is constructed and how it becomes the melody and how it becomes the harmony. And if that doesn't work, then you can just lie on top of a grand piano and play upside down. <laughs> well, and I, I think what you just gave was an excellent example, though, of, of how to do it. Yeah, that's uh, it's one thing that we can do. But again, like a computer, you could also analyze it harmonically. You could analyze it rhythmically you can just rip the bejesus out of it. And uh, when I was very, very young, I had a teacher that made me do that. And I became very bored with that. Um, so instead, I just learned the pieces themselves. And then if I had a problem with technique or I inadvertently missed bringing out the right voice, uh, that was the kind of thing that my teachers would point out to me, and I would appreciate that. All right. Now, I want to uh, move ahead quickly. I actually want to play one of your songs, and we're going to listen to the whole song, and then I'm going to have you talk about it.
Russ. That was fabulous. We're going to go to a quick commercial break, and when we come back, I want you to talk about that song. Stay with us. Central Payment, your number one credit card merchant service provider in the industry. Providing e-commerce solutions, POS systems, standalone terminals, mobile apps, and much more, call Central Payments' James Carner at 813-777-4332. Looking for the lowest rates in the industry and number one customer service? Call Central Payments' James Carner at 813-777-4332. That's James Carner, 813-777-4332. Do you suffer from back, neck, or body pain? Do you suffer from migraines or have jaw or face pain? Has conventional medicine failed you? Were you injured or in an accident? Call chiropractic physician Dr. Dan Maddock at 813-935-1664. Dr. Dan has helped thousands of patients gain relief for more than 30 years. Dr. Dan is caring, gentle, and takes his time with each patient. He's also a past president of the International Craniopathic Society, a special certification of only 300 chiropractors worldwide. Dr. Dan helps patients from the neck up and the neck down. Dr. Dan accepts most insurance plans. Don't continue to live in pain. Call 813-935-1664. 1664 today. That's 813-935-1664 and get on track to better health. Welcome back to the world of Lori Zook. Russ Kassoff with me today from New York. Now, Russ, let's talk about that song we played, uh, you know, a few minutes ago. Tell me all about it. Tell me how you d- developed that whole little arrangement of it and who you're playing with. Okay. Uh, the name of that song is The Best Thing for You. And as I may have mentioned in the last time we met, uh, I believe that the best songs in the Great American Songbook are the ones where the words and the music are equal. So even though I'm playing an instrumental version of it with my great trio, uh, Martin Wind on the bass and Tim Horner on the drums who have gone on to lead their own groups and are just touring the world sharing their music with everybody uh, that was from an album I did my very first as a leader in 2005 called Somewhere this song uh, The Best Thing For You was a very hip song to play at weddings and bar mitzvahs mm-hmm. by the hip club date cats back in the 70s and 80s and it was one of those tunes that if you were in the click of these cats that played all the best private parties, you had to learn this tune. Well, it w- it's a hard tune. It's got very unusual changes, very unusual chords, and it's written by Irving Berlin. It was written in 1950, and it was actually in a Broadway show called Call Me Madam, and the very first person who actually sang it in the world was Ethel Merman. Oh, wow. And so when I play uh, songs like this, I often do the research by looking up the words and playing from the words and uh, this this song starts out uh, I only want what's the best thing for you and the best thing for you would be me and it goes on and on and on and maybe uh, uh, and many of the great singers uh, have recorded this tune so when I play the melody (coughs) I think of the lyric, and sometimes I actually put the lyric in front of me. I often do that when I'm recording, uh, rather than the music. And uh, to get to the uh, chorus where I'm playing in unison with the bass, that's a technique where we're soloing together. It's called soli, uh, and uh, we have the drummer uh, play the beat to uh, to accompany us. We're both playing the exact same notes, and I had to write out those notes, so it's like a little bit of classical music. Yeah, that was, let me, I'm going to interrupt you. That was amazing, because that's the part I picked up. I went, wow, the bass is doubling the piano player in such a syncopated rhythm that sounds so complex. That How did you do that? Well, oddly enough, I didn't write anything down. We were just reading each other's minds. It was a miracle. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, no, uh, um, I got the idea from a really great pianist who's out there playing all the time still. His name is Bill Mays, and he recorded a tune on one of his albums that was current at the time, and I heard that, and I said, wow, I want to do that. So I wrote down an improvised chorus of the chord changes around the melody of that song, wrote it down into music, made sure that it made musical sense, lyrical sense, it had a nice arc, nice phrasing, 
and it was idiomatic for the bass, you got to make sure that the bass player can do it because every instrument has different idiosyncrasies. Like a trumpet player wouldn't have been able to do that. But um, it worked out fine. And since then, each year I write at least one chart that has something like that in it where piano and bass are playing in unison. And anyway, it's very effective, and it gives you a chance to open up to play the improvised solos, of which I played a couple of choruses, and Martin played one, and we did some fours with uh, Tim. And ta-da! It came out great. Now, you know, even though I'm a musician and I know what arranging means, I also know that it's a special skill I don't really do. So maybe you can talk a little bit about arranging, because from what I understand, you have to arrange it for whoever's performing it, you know, whether it's a, a trio or a larger band. And then what, you have to feature the different instruments either, you know, separately or together. How do you do that? Well, let's take... Uh a typical arrangement of Frank Sinatra's. Okay. An arrangement, an arranger would come up with an idea of how to have whatever band is going to accompany, or orchestra, or even just solo piano, the singer's performance. The singer in this case is the soloist. So uh, you'll hear a little introduction in the, say, Come Fly With Me, the classic Come Fly With Me recording. So that's the uh, intro. Sinatra comes in and he sings, Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Then you hear the, a, a group of instruments going, those little holes. Right. Well, a singer and an arranger get together and decide how the phrasing is going to go throughout the entire delivery of the song. The message, the lyric, what it means, and where the holes will be that can be filled in by different instruments that give it different colors, different swing, different rhythms, things like that. And it gets more and more complicated uh, the bigger the orchestra is, but then you'll have, uh, you'll need some footballs, you'll need some whole note chords being held and moved by strings or woodwinds or even lower brass. And that's in the big case scenario. In the small case scenario, it's a matter of deciding where you want to breathe, uh, either as an instrumentalist or as a vocalist. Uh, I recall reading very recently that uh, Glenn Zatola was told by a very prominent jazz musician uh, that he was a great accompanist on the trumpet and the saxophone because he knew exactly where to play around the singer's delivery of the song without getting in the way, just complimenting and accompanying that line and that's an art unto itself uh you don't want to hear people stepping on each other and getting in the way and once in a while somebody who's improvising is going to decide to take a chance and, and do a different note out of the ordinary right. and that might clash with with a chord that's been written out for 40 instruments you know so uh arranging is an art it's more than a skill you have to study it and the way i've learned how to arrange is just by listening to the great arrangers for uh, Sinatra, it's Nelson Riddle and Don Costa and Billy May. And in big band world, it's Thad Jones. Uh, there are so many, Rob McConnell. Uh, and in the small band world, it's just listening to small groups, how they play with each other, how they complement each other, and figuring out how to smooth it all out, make it an arc, make it a story, like a form of a song, like a form of a sonata. You right. have the beginning, you have the repeat, you have the exposition, and then you have the finale and the coda. It's like a gigantic arc, and it's like a question, and then it's an answer. And that's the way I like to uh, That's a great explanation. That, that's great. Now, in the song that we just heard, how long does it take to do something like that? Oh, it took me about 20 minutes to, to do that one. That's, that's, that's what I do every day. I play tunes, and, and I... Wow. I, workout arrangements. And I'm thinking hours or days, and you're doing it in 20 minutes. Okay. Um, well, we're used to playing these tunes in many different ways. Uh, if we played it live, we wouldn't play it that long. We wouldn't give the drummer a solo, you know, stuff like that. Right, right, right. Well, what I want to do, I want to go to another song. Lee's going to tune us up here for another song, and then we'll talk about that. Okay.
Russ? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, goody. Okay. So what we're going to do, I had him cut it at three minutes because we're going, we're talking a lot. So we have about 12 minutes left. And what I'd like to do, when he comes back, I'm just going to jump in and say, tell us about that song, Same Deal. And we'll have about mm, 10 to 11 minutes. I want to be able to have you give out your contact information. And then the third song, I think, is what we'll go out with, if that's good for you. Well, that's fine, except uh, what you played in there isn't the point of the song. It's the next four minutes. Oh, jeez. It's stride piano. I play fast and I play louder, faster, funnier. Well, I'll just, and that's I'll, what I'm known for in concerts. I'll just put the whole song in there instead of... You want to do that? Yeah, I, I can do that later. You can go back and edit it? Okay. Yeah. So you're going to... Okay, so that whole song is what, six minutes? Six and a half? Yeah. Six and a half. Six and a half. Okay, so that leaves me how many? Five well, and a half? Uh, Gee, all this from a hello. I know, you know, we might have to do a third show. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, yeah. What was it? You have twelve, so you have nine minutes left. I have nine minutes if you put the six minutes in. Right. All right. So hang on a second here. I'm just making my notes. We got. Don't nine. worry about the third song. It's Catherine singing. Catherine Dupuis singing. Oh, okay. Okay. Then let's do let's do the six minutes. You'll you'll edit in the six minutes. That leaves yeah. me nine minutes to talk. So I got to watch the clock. At the when we get to like uh, nine, when we get to like seven minutes, can you cue me with low bumper music? And then Russ, I'll, I'll start to ask you your contact information, that kind of stuff. And then we'll use the last minute to go out though, with that last song. How's that? However you want to do it is fine. Yeah. We can always come back and do another one because I have to suck your brain more. So, but I'm going to have to, uh, set up a buffet then. (laughs) 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 What kind of deli is this? I know. I know. It's the jazz. I wanted you to plug your radio show too. So, um, does that work for you, Lee? We, we yeah, put in this the whole six and a half minutes. Sure, yeah, yeah. That leaves me about nine. So if you can cue me at around seven, I'll ask him for That's his contact. Seven minutes left or two minutes left? No, no, I'm sorry, two minutes left. Oh, okay. Two minutes left. Just just put in bumper music, bumper from, music the, from, or, the third song? from the third song, but leave right. it running, and then when he does, gives his ending, then you can close out and turn the music up. Does that work? Sure. Okay, let's do that. Okay. All right, so we're going to pretend now that we heard the whole song. All right, so you'll tune back in. All right. Um, yeah, so I'll cue you in just a second here. Okie dokie. Russ, tell us about that song. Well, as you can tell, it's always exciting to play that stride style. And I'm pretty well known for doing that. I, I do it at least once or twice in concerts and often on gigs. Uh, I developed that solo stride style uh, as a gigantic fan of Art Tatum and Oscar Peterson, folks that do such things. It's very hard to play because it hurts, but um, (laughs) people love it. It always uh, gets them out of their chairs. And uh, that was uh, New Sun in the Sky, which was originally from the Broadway show The Bandwagon, which was written by Arthur Schwartz and Howard Dietz. And they are a very conducive... Arthur Schwartz is very conducive as a composer to play his music. For some reason, jazz musicians just flock to his tunes, such as Alone Together. That's one of them. And uh, I always enjoyed playing his tunes. This was premiered in the show by Fred Astaire, and anything Fred Astaire ever did was like heaven to me. It's so fresh and new and vibrant and easy to think about when you're playing a tune like this. So we had a good time doing the stride piano solo of New Sun in the Sky. Beautiful. Well, I want to jump now to the celebrities you perform with. You were Frank Sinatra's pianist. How did you? First off, how did you land that gig, and what was it like? I mean, to me, that would be a thrill. Well, of course it was a thrill. <laughs> I, I, th- I, I think we covered this in the last interview. A little bit. I, I can't get tired of this. Uh, I was playing at the World Trade Center, Windows on the World, 1976 through 79, and that's where I was developing my stride piano skills, because it was a solo piano gig, and uh, a man came up to me who introduced himself as Nick Perito. I didn't know who he was, and he was very complimentary. He was also taken aback by the fact that I didn't know who he was, and I was just a young kid, 27 years old or so. And as it turns out, I found out from my boss the next week that he was Perry Como's conductor. Flash forward to 1980, I was working for a big conglomerate private industrial party agency called the Ray Block Office, which was an office that purchased the name from the conductor of the old Ed Sullivan show. So big companies like IBM would hire them to put together extravaganzas 
as uh, gifts and uh, annual meetings of their employees, and we went to Bermuda, and on this gig was Nick Perito and Perry Como. Also on this gig was the contractor who contracted the Sinatra musicians. Okay. And I was introduced to him, and I went up to him, being the, the say, uh, OCD kid that I was, <laughs> and I said, if you ever need anyone to play for Frank Sinatra, I don't need the music. I don't need anything. You did I'll that. Just show up. And he looked at me, and he like kind of appreciated that. And two weeks later, the fellow who was doing that particular gig, which was the orchestral piano chair, uh, fell ill, unfortunately, and I got the call. So, uh... That's your lucky it, break. I mean, you're all your stars lined up. You were in the right place at the right time with the right contacts, and you had the talent. That day. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's phenomenal. So what what was Frank Sinatra like? I mean, you had to have, I see the pictures. It looks like you have a great, or had a great relationship while he was alive. Well, uh... I, I mentioned that whenever he walked in the room, it was magic. I remember. At first, I was just totally, uh, what's the word? Is there a word? Just taken by his aura, his star stuff, as it were. And uh, eventually, I learned that if he respected you, you were treated like family. And if you made it to a gig like that, all the musicians were like top-notch musicians from all around the world, wherever they came. And he had different orchestras in different areas. Um, so he kind of like checks everybody out. And he checked me out and he respected me right away. He really liked my playing. And he said to the contractor, whenever we need a guy, call the kid. So <laughs> I've been the kid ever since. And uh, when I die, it'll say, here lies the kid. kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's phenomenal. Um, Liza Minnelli, now you were also her pianist. Well, that uh, was, uh, I got the call for that on my birthday in 1982. Uh, that's a happy it, birthday, let me tell you. It became a happy birthday, and I had to go and play for her in her apartment, which was on the Upper East Side at the time, and there were Andy Warhols all over the place on the wall. You know, the Judy Garlands, the Vincent Minnellis, yeah. the Lizas. And uh, I played for her. We hit it off right away. And I lasted 18 years with her. And she was one of the most talented people you will ever see live perform. She gave 199.9% of everything. And uh, I have a ton of great memories. We traveled the world about seven times. We went around the world. Wow. And since she was managed by the same gentleman who managed Frank... There were often times that they didn't work at the same time, and I got to continue playing for Frank. So it worked out pretty well for a while. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm envious. Judy Garland, her mother, my favorite performer of all time, Over the Rainbow, The Wizard of Oz, loved that. I saw her, I don't know if you remember, a Broadway show called The Act, I think back in the early, late, well, late 70s or early 80s that came out. She was phenomenal. Yeah, that was right before I started with her. That was like 1979. Is it different being, I mean, are celebrities, do you find them to be down to earth when, when you work with them? Because you are now their friend. Well, they're all different. Every one of them is different. But when you get into a personal side of them, they're all pretty much the same. But what makes them different is that they're going to perform and they're going to mesmerize you in the audience. And they are taking on the responsibility of entertaining you. Whatever you're doing in the audience, you could have worked all week, you could have not been feeling well, you could have decided that this is the only thing that I can afford to do, and you bring your wife or your husband or your family, and you don't want to hear about anything. You just want to sit down and be entertained. And that's a lot of pressure on a performer. And they all give as much as they possibly can give. Everyone is different. Everyone has different strengths. Uh, Sinatra, all he had to do was walk in the room. And if he opened his mouth to sing, that was like a bonus. Wow! And, did you okay, get? Did sorry. you get? No, that's right. Did you get? I mean, do you get nervous? Did you get nervous? Do you still get nervous when you go out to do a live performance? I don't get nervous, except in the occasion that uh, I mentioned before, when I know that there's an expert out there that, okay. like, I'm going to have to really do the best I can. But at the same time, my attitude and my philosophy is that this is what I do. Here, here it is for you. I'm going to give you 100% of what I've got, and I am sharing what I've got, this God-given talent with you. I'd love to do it a lot more than I do. Uh, that's another topic. That's called business. 
and um, whenever I get the opportunity, uh, I look out in the audience. I usually make eye contact with a lot of people. I try to reach them in different ways. Specifically, like this week, I'm uh, playing at a uh, assisted living center on Friday, mm-hmm. and this is a place where you know they wheel everybody in. Everybody's having a good time. And <coughs> it's all exciting for them. They're going to hear some tunes that they're familiar with. I'm not going to be playing weather report or stuff like that. I'm going to ask them what their tunes were from 50, 60, 70 years ago. I'm going to look them in the eyes, and I'm going to get how they appreciate the moment that they're that I'm sharing, that we're all sharing uh, the music that we have with them. And it brings back memories for them, and they love it. And it's there's nothing more rewarding to me than that kind of a uh, give and take. Yeah, I think the best thing about the assisted living homes is when you reach the residents with the songs that they love, they start moving. They start singing. They start dancing. They start clapping. You're bringing back a happy memory in their life. Oh, yes, and that's what music is, an international language. Now, you also host the radio show The Jazz Deli. Why don't you plug that? Okay, it's on WFDU.FM, and you click on Listen to HD2. It's live on Saturday mornings from 10 a.m. to to noon. It's called The Jazz Deli with Russ Kassoff, where our tongue sandwiches speak for themselves. (laughs) And the mission of the show is to share with the world my own record collection, my own recordings, and often I'm within one or two degrees of separation. I can always tell a story about what I play for you, either by knowing the performer, the artist, the instrumentalist, or the composer, or the arranger, or by actually being on the recording myself. So stories like are popping up today pop up there all the time. And I really love that. I'm getting great response, and it's being heard around the world. Now, you also have CDs out. Now, how can people get your CDs? How can they buy them? How can they contact you? Okay. Uh, I have two CDs available right now. A third one is almost done. Uh, the first one's called Somewhere. You heard that track, uh, The Best Thing For You. And the second one's called Bird Fly By. You heard that track, uh, um, this Fred Astaire tune. Um, what was the name of that tune? I could sing it for you. You can. You sing well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Anyway, you can get either of those uh, recordings at cdbaby.com slash cd slash Russ Kassoff. That's R-U-S-S-K-A-S-S-O-F-F. You can go to my website, russkassoff.com, two S's, two S's and two F's. Uh, and you can always email me at Russ K, R-U-S-S-K, jazz director, J-A-Z-Z-D-I-R-E-C-T-O-R at gmail.com. And off my website, Russ, R-U-S-S, at russkassoff.com. Great. That? That, that's awesome. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really a lot of fun. Always my pleasure. It always goes by so fast. It does. We could talk a lot longer. We might just have to do it again. Well, it would be my pleasure. Thank you, Russ. And join me next week on The World of Lori Zook. Still there? I am still here.